Kia ora, koa and O'Brien tuku ingoa, e kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. The World Beyond Chris Long, author of The Boy from Gorge River, grew up in a remote, off-grid corner of the South Island, two days' walk from the nearest town. Writer, UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador and philanthropist Joe Morgan, author of Dancing with the Machine, lived with her husband Gareth, son Sam, the founder of Trade Me, and their three other children on a Bedford house bus, travelling the country and doing everything from picking carrots to gutting fish. Both have taken long-honed resilience and a sense of adventure to the world, across continents, up mountains, and through adversity. They discuss all with journalist, backcountry adventurer, and author of Solo, Hazel Phillips. Kia ora koutou. welcome to session 99, The World Beyond. Just before we get started, a friendly reminder, make sure your phones are all switched to silent, and please also wear a face mask if you are able to do so in the interests of our ongoing and collective health. And please also remember, if you feel unwell at any time, you're free to leave. Um, Don't feel uncomfortable about doing so. We also encourage you to share about this event on social media, um, but please do so with consideration for your fellow audience members. Thank you, Chris. We're going to talk through adventuring first and writing second, uh, and then have audience questions, probably 10 to 15 minutes, plenty of time for those, um, so make sure that you save them up. I have here with me today two very accomplished adventurers and authors, um, Joe Morgan and Chris Long. Uh, Chris grew up in Gorge River on the west coast between Haast and Milford Sound, uh, 40 kilometres from the nearest road end by foot. I've got that correct, Chris? That's correct. And from there he has travelled all over the world in pursuit of adventure. Joe has lived in a house bus with her young family, ridden motorbikes in countries people would advise you not to even visit, and is currently tackling the challenge of summiting all 24 of New Zealand's 3,000 metre plus peaks. Warm welcome for our two speakers. Jo, I'm going to start with you. In reading uh, your book, I discovered that you and I actually have a lot in common. So we both like motorbikes and snowy environments. Um, We both actually own the same pink climbing helmet. And uh, both of us have peed into things that we shouldn't have peed into. I peed into my belly. Long story, we're not going to go into that today. But you peed into a bucket in a broom cupboard. And I think that's an excellent place to start the conversation. We were in Turkey at the time, and it was very, very masculine, the whole street scene, and I'd asked for a toilet, and somebody directed me towards a building, and after investigating this building in great detail, I couldn't find anything, and I was getting a bit desperate, and I found a cupboard. And luckily, it had a bucket in it, but I was getting pretty desperate. It didn't matter if there was a bucket or not. Hallmark of a great adventure, I think. And Chris... You and I have a bit in common too. We both enjoy unconventional lifestyles and adventures. And uh, we both really enjoy killing small furry animals. I'm into mice, you're into possums. I was quite impressed with your possuming. Yeah, so um, I actually remember at Gorge River when the first possum turned up. And I was about maybe eight years old and there was this really weird noise outside that sounded like an animal up a tree. Um, And very sadly, that was actually the first possum that ever came into our area. And then over the years that followed, we saw that one possum become, you know, we'd catch two possums perhaps around the garden, and then that turned into catching six possums around the garden. And then over the years, 
uh, we watched the, the dead rata trees coming closer and closer to Gorge River. They're actually moving from the south, this kind of wave of possums. Um, and then very sadly, many of the rata trees at Big Bay, which is one day's hike south from Gorge River, they were all starting to die and the, the uh, actual hillsides were starting to slip down um, from the dead trees. And then eventually it, it was just south from Gorge River, about five kilometres. And due to our efforts, and Dad's actually done a lot of this over the last few years since I left home, uh, we've managed to keep the dead rata trees at bay um, so far at Gorge River, which has taken many, many days, many, many months of work um, out and around the mountains, which is obviously um, pretty cool as well. You can get up and you can explore some parts of the wilderness that you wouldn't otherwise explore if you didn't have a reason to, so that's nice. Awesome. Yep. There'll be heaps of people in the audience today who don't know where Gorge River is, maybe a few people who could pick it out on a topo map. So, and there'll be people who haven't read your book, highly recommend both these books, amazing reads, um, binge read both of them. Can you just describe for people kind of where Gorge River is and the sort of isolation that you grew up in and kind of what's the base of your story and your background? Absolutely. So um, if you jump on a plane from Auckland, head south, you're going to probably land in, in Queenstown. That's the closest major airport. And there's two ways to get to Gorge River from there. You can jump in an aircraft and you can fly right through the heart of the Southern Alps, right through where they filmed the Lord of the Rings, essentially. And then you come out over onto the West Coast. The um, landscape turns to the, the West Coast jungle. And then you come out right out to the ocean. And that's where my house is, about 50, kilo, uh, 50 metres um, from the sea. We've got the Gorge River itself, which runs runs from the mountains and it's a really special part of the country where there's, there's no road or anything between the top of the mountains and the ocean. Now the other way to get there is you would, you would drive um, through Wanaka and then over to Haast, take a left when you get to Haast, head down south down the west coast until the road finishes and then you put on your, your backpack and you walk for two days and then after spotting uh, many thousands of sand flies you'll find yourself at Gorge River, and that's where I live. It's approximately halfway between Haas to the north, Milford Sound to the south, right on the coast. Chris, it, it really comes through in your writing that you have this very well thought through philosophy on safety um, from growing up in Gorge River, and there's one quote from your book that, um, that stuck out to me. From a very young age, I was learning to respect the unforgiving nature of South Westland and Fiordland. There are two types of people in this area, those who can stay and survive and those who leave or don't make it. I needed to learn to be a survivor. With an upbringing like this, you developed kind of a philosophy around safety. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, from a very young age, in fact, from before I remember, um, I, was, I was probably on um, Dad's back in his little backpack and he would be... Uh, catching fish or he'd be um, collecting kaimawana from the ocean and you've got these massive waves rolling in from the from the west and like, you, you just have to be so careful around that ocean and it, if you make a mistake and you get dragged out and into a rip and, and smashed on the rocks, that's it. You're probably not going to be coming home. Um, and then same, same whenever you're uh, hiking along the coastline, uh, as you go into a river, there's a chance you won't come out the other side. So you have to make sure that you, you get every little decision right as you go. And I think um, one of the, the many things with safety is never go past your point of no return. Always know that you can get back safely. 
And so um, I learned a lot growing up at Gorge River, surrounded by that environment. Um, and then once I left home and came more into the professional world and outdoor education and um, guiding and that sort of thing, there's obviously a lot of health and safety everywhere you go. And the pinnacle of that was um, working down in Antarctica at Scott Base. And it's, I've been able to take a lot of those skills that I learned at home um, of knowing that I couldn't really make a mistake because if I made a mistake, there was probably no one there to, to fix it for me. So I had to um, fix it, either fix it myself or just not make it in the first place, which was um, always the best option. And it was, it's been pretty cool to take that mindset um, pretty much ar around the globe to, to different places and then also um, and constantly absorb from other people as well how they manage safety and share ideas. Mm. And Joe, there's a bit of a thread there for safety for you too, isn't there? Um, there's a, a bit in the book which I found delightful where you were uh, young and getting into motorbikes and dating uh, an Air Force pilot and he rode pillion and then at the end of the ride he gets off and he swears he's never going to ride pillion again, um, which just delighted me. Are you, are you a hoon disguised as a granny? I, I was a hoon for quite a period of time, but now I'm a granny most, the, most of the time, but I do have a fast Ducati in the shed. And I got in it the other day and I thought, oh God, this is scary. And um, I was out doing a very short ride and deciding that probably I should be looking at the safety aspects of it and taking it a bit easier. And it gets expensive if you get caught. <laughs> and not so much on the safety side, but um, I'm surprised that you also had your bus license and you were a bus driver at one point. Um, and you kind of delight in, in subverting gender norms, I feel. Um, there's one scene in the book where you're uh, trying to get a job driving a bus in Australia. Do you want to chat through that one? Yes, the Australians were quite difficult to deal with as a female bus driver in those days. They, um, they were just blatantly sexist, really. And when I came back from work one day and they'd left this one very small space and um, the men were all out of the smoker room with their arms folded and their legs apart, looking very masculine. And, um, and I thought, shivers, I've got one go at this. So I backed in perfectly and had about six inches on either side and I could squeeze out. And um, they were all quite ample men and seemingly they had to shuffle the whole fleet for one of the bigger drivers to be able to get into the bus again. So I think I had the last laugh. <laughs> and speaking of men, you've, you've ridden overseas on motorbikes with your husband and a group of men, and they've been uh, mistaken for your husbands, plural, haven't they? Yeah, it became very convenient when we were travelling when there was the five men and there was me. And six motorbikes, I'm not a pillion. And um, the, the locals would obviously think that maybe I was the comfort woman especially when we got into some countries. And actually in Iran, we were in the traffic and this man came up and he was on a small motorbike. And he said to me, oh, you have five husbands. And I nodded my head. And um, then he said to me, every week's got seven days. You only need one day off. I'm coming too, he said. <laughs> and it was with great difficulty we managed to lose him in the traffic. But, uh, it was, um, it was a great sense of humour and, you know, we had a lot of fun when I'd go out to town and one of the other men would be with me and I'd say, if I get into trouble, you can all save me, you can just say she's my 
wife and drag me away if I get into um, you know political strife in some of these Muslim countries was sort of you were pushing the boundaries by being out there. So um, I always felt safe when I had one of the men around, at least they could pretend they were my temporary husband. Seeing as we're on this thread, in the book there's one bit where um, Gareth's private parts turn orange. Oh, that was also in the countries that you weren't allowed um, alcohol. And travelling by motorbike with no alcohol at the end of the day is really tricky. And we, um, we'd get to the end of the day and we'd drink copious quantities of Fanta. And, um, and Gareth's skin colouring did change. <laughs> How long did it change for? Well, I didn't, I didn't keep watching. <laughs> I wasn't going to give him the satisfaction of watching. <laughs> and, and nobody I else's? Did, I did ask all the other blokes, has your privates changed colour? And um, no, nobody else seemed to want to admit to it, so. <laughs> um, one of my favourite scenes in the book, apart from uh, Fanta Privates and um, you peeing in a broom cupboard, was the one where you committed a home invasion. I think you should uh, tell the audience about this, it's quite good. Uh, yes, we were, I think, in Indonesia at the time, and we were looking for somewhere for lunch, and we saw a place with a big table outside, and it looked sort of like a lunch place. So we took our gear off and parked the motorbikes and sat down, and the lady in the kitchen looked a bit bemused, and I thought, well, the service is a bit slack, so I wandered into the kitchen and pointed to the eggs, and, you know, you've got no words in common, and... And then I saw a pan, and we got the pan out, and got some butter, and started frying the eggs. And then, you know, we're all getting along well. And this man walks out in just a towel. And he had a little bit of English, and he said, what are you doing? And this is my house. <laughs> but anyway, they were the local teachers, and they had to go to school shortly after that, and told us to shut the gate when we left. And um, you realise how you can get things so wrong. It's made me a lot more forgiving to tourists in New Zealand that wander into the wrong place, or you might wander, find wandering around your garden looking at your flowers or something. They, you know, people just get it wrong occasionally. But it was a, a lovely meeting anyway with this, um, this woman and her husband in the towel. You could put that on your CV, Home Invasion. <laughs> Chris, you did a lot of correspondence school. Um, what was that like? Was it challenging uh, being in such a remote environment? I did correspondence school German, and I remember some of having mm. to send the envelopes away and getting them back, and there was a bit of a lag. But for you, it must have been quite extreme. And, and also, did it teach you a sort of self-motivation? Yeah, it was definitely a challenge. So um, for, home, for primary school, I did homeschooling, uh, which was... I mean, for me, that was quite simple. It was probably quite difficult for mum and dad because they had to provide a lot of content for me to be learning from. Um, and then for high school, I just wanted a little bit more influence from the outside world. And so I enrolled with the correspondence school, and that's a school that's based in Wellington. You actually have a, a real teacher, and you, you um, learn the New Zealand curriculum from these workbooks, which they send out to you. Problem, I guess, that we had was that we would get mail every six weeks, like in, at the best of times. So they would send out a workbook to me, and then I would um, answer the questions. I'd send it. I'd send it out with um, with our next food supply drop, which was six weeks later, and then six weeks after that, they would have marked it and sent it back to me. So it was a very slow process. Um, and the, the time it worked the best is if we could convince the teachers 
to send the whole year's work out in one go in a big box. And I think mum lost count on how many phone conversations she had with the teachers in Wellington when we came out every six months and actually had a phone to call the teachers on. Um, she lost count of the number of times that she just couldn't get through to them how isolated we were and how important it was that they sent us those lessons because there was, there was very few subjects, very few teachers that actually ever did send out like, a bulk amount of lessons at once. Um, if they did send out all the lessons at once, it was, it was great because at the beginning of the year I could pick through all the, and find all the, the interesting books and then towards the end of the year I'd be um, doing the more boring ones. But the best part of it was that I could do all of my schoolwork on rainy days and then that meant that I could go possum hunting and white baiting when the sun was shining. And if I was really committed, I could have almost my entire year of work done by the time white bait season came along, and then I could just go <laughs> white baiting <laughs> for a few weeks. I want to party with you. That sounds good. Um, also, immunity. I noticed that you had excellent immunity while living at Gorge River, but as soon as you went out into the big bad world of Haast, yeah. the story. So we, we would walk out from home, which would take us about um, three to five days, depending on how old we were and the weather and, and all of that. And once we got out to the end of that trek, it was like obviously a massive undertaking for, for a three and a half year old, and even as a 15 year old, it was still a massive undertaking for us. And so we'd get to Haast um, and into the big wide world of, of um, bugs and flus and, and everything, and we'd be obviously a sitting target for them. Um, so every single time we came out as kids, we got sick. And interestingly, we never got sick at home. And yes, we're very isolated, but we do have a lot of visitors coming through still. We do have like, um, contact with bugs and everything, but we, we never got them when we were at Gorge River because we were, were eating very healthy food from the environment and the garden and everything, and we were, we were very, very strong. Now, later on, uh, when I was 17, I left home. I went and lived in Wanaka and attended Mount Aspiring College for my last year of school. Um, and then went on to do a couple of polytech courses in outdoor leadership and ski patrolling in Wanaka and Dunedin. And for those first three years that I spent away from Gorge River, I definitely got hit by a lot of bugs. And I'd, I'd get a cough and it would stick with me for like probably three months or so. And it was obviously my body kind of adapting to the big wide world of bugs. I was adapting to the big wide world of um, being social and all of that as well. And after those three years, then since then I've never really got, got very sick again. Um, this year I've, I've had a couple. One, of course, was COVID. Um, but generally I maybe only kind of fall ill once, once a year for a, a day or so. And I think I've definitely managed to carry on that strong immune system mm. through the rest of life, which has been really useful. And then when it came to the COVID lockdown, I mean, isolation as a concept for all of us is something really new, but for you, obviously, it wasn't. Did anything actually even change at Gorge River when the lockdowns happened? Um, at Gorge River, not, not so much changed. Life was um, continued on for, as normal. I was actually in Norway for the first lockdown. Um, so my life changed completely because I was suddenly on the other side of the world. And Airlines were going bankrupt and airports and tickets were getting cancelled and I have no idea if I could even get home. Um, however, mum and dad, life went on as normal. They collected their firewood and they caught their fish and they, dad went and caught some possums. But the big difference, dad told me, is that um, they knew they were never going to get a visitor. 
through that time. Whereas usually you wake up in the morning and dad will be like, oh, maybe a helicopter will land today. Um, but there was, there was none of that. It was no one was hiking, no one was flying, and you very much were at the very uh, bottom of New Zealand down there for those six weeks. Um, luckily, by the time New Zealand went back to whatever level it was, um, and then they were, able to, they were able to get their food supply drop because we were just starting to get a little bit worried about how we were going to get a food supply drop down to mum and dad after six weeks of, um, of, of full lockdown uh, in New Zealand. And you grew up without a TV, no electronics, no stereos, no Xbox, which I'm reliably informed from a couple of 10-year-olds as child abuse. But what really occurred to me, Chris, through the text, it really came out that you love your parents. You like, you really, really love your family. Because I think it would be so easy for a, a kid to grow up and then sort of turn around and resent their parents for something like that. It's different for you, isn't it? Yeah, I, I feel very lucky to have grown up at Gorge River um, and have, have had such, had such a unique upbringing which taught me a whole lot about myself and about the wilderness and also about the world as well because we'd listen to national radio and read Encyclopedia Britannica and we knew everything that was happening in the world. So it gave me a really good um, vantage point to look at the world and, and then um, go on out into the world and explore it afterwards. And so I feel very lucky and, and so therefore I'm very thankful that mum and dad made those um, obviously massive decisions like to go and live in the middle of nowhere like that. Um, Dad lived there for 10 years by himself. He wanted to live off the land. He wanted to go somewhere where he could live sustainably in the way that he wanted to live, um, growing a vegetable garden and, ca and catching fish and just having less impact on the world. And back in 1980, you had to go a long way to find somewhere you could do that and not be very heavily judged by people. And so that was obviously very difficult for him. And then mum, he met mum, in 1987, and mum moved out there, and that's no easy undertaking either. Um, whereas for me, I, I was born into that. So I'm very, very thankful that they put that effort in and stood by those morals, and, and they wanted to raise a family without the technology and the TV and all that sort of thing. And um, yeah, I do not regret growing up without an Xbox and a TV at all. Anyway, you're still, you're still a fully formed human being, functioning adult. Yeah, um, Joe, there's a huge amount of surprising uh, material in your book. There's a lot that kind of raised my eyebrows, but there's one phrase that surprised me the absolute most, because I've never heard anyone say this before. I'll quote page 33: "I was enjoying Palmerston North." <laughs> <laughs> And I, and I do jest a little bit because I know there's, a, there's at least one person in this audience today who, who owns an iHeart Palmy mug. You know who you are. Well, you've got to realise I came from Invercargill. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew if I didn't succeed in the big wide world, I'd have to go back. And <laughs> I still love Invercargill dearly, and I've got four brothers down there still, and I get down there regularly. But it's, um, it's such a great thing in your life when you leave home and you go somewhere and you don't have any of those support networks and I got to Palmerston North and um, at Massey University and got a job in the motorbike shop so I used to tune motorbikes for people and they'd take my lecture notes so you could see my student um, results weren't that great but um, I met Gareth and I realised well we don't all have to be that educated, he'll do and so, um, so it was great, um, a great way to break away from home and to do a lot of, you know, the education stuff, but also the mechanical stuff, which I always loved doing. 
and um, to find a, a bloke that you get on with in the process, it, you know, it was all good. So I led my life totally back to front from Chris, but by the time I was Chris's age, I probably had three children, and so I had to do my adventuring a bit later in life. I couldn't do it when, you know, I actually had the physique to probably do it more adequately. When you met Gareth, um, it was not love at first sight, though, was it? Well, no. was dislike at first sight or hate at first sight? Uh, no, it was. Um, th they let me into his flat when he was overseas, and he wasn't very impressed when he came back and found me in his flat. But um, ah, we got over it. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, though. Yeah. It wasn't love at first sight. It is now. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> You've fallen into a crevasse, which I think is probably something that not many people in this room could say. What's it like to fall into a crevasse? Um, it was sort of like hang, dangling, dangling in the middle of a church um, up there just below the steeple, and it was a beautiful blue room. So by the time you overcome the sort of this initial shock of the fall, you, I was dangling in the middle of a room. It wasn't a crevasse as such. It was a huge, big... Um, structure down there and it was very pretty and very blue and I thought shivers what do I do now because normally you fall into a crevasse and you can get your ice axe into the wall and with a bit of tension on the rope you can manage to climb yourself out again but when you're dangling in the middle it's a lot more difficult and I couldn't really do anything and because I was spinning around I started getting a bit motion sick so I thought oh I'll just hold on to the rope and die, and I wondered if I should jettison my pack, which was probably about 18 kilograms. It was, you know, it's a heavy pack because we were going up to Empress Hut for a long time. And I didn't. I held on to it pig-headedly, thinking, no, if I drop my pack, it's all over. There, it was three quarters of an hour before I got fished out. The, the boys, um, Martin and Wolfgang, both set up a, a line and hauled me out of there. And um, sort of, I got pulled out like a beached fish. So I'm lying there on the ice thinking, oh my God, that was, you know, feeling a bit queasy still. And I get a little boot in the ribs, are you, are you right yet? Can we go yet? And um, so we didn't really talk about it for about a week until we'd done the mountain we were going there to climb, which was La Perouse. And we got back to the hut and we, sort of eventually had that debrief about what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And um, really, I think shit happens sometimes, and it happened, and I was lucky to get out of it. And let's keep going with that one, because you, obviously, you were avalanched, and Wolfgang and Martin did not survive, and you found yourself partially buried, but had the presence of mind to snap a photo of the sunrise. I wasn't partially buried. I had my nose out. Oh. <laughs> So, you know, I was, my face was in this little pudding bowl and um, every time I moved, sort of snow fell into this bowl and around my, my mouth and so, but I could still breathe and I could still move and I got one arm out and you're right, I got myself partially out and, um, and the sun was rising and I thought, shivers, this is so beautiful. And I got my phone out and took some photos and at that stage, I knew that the boys can't have survived because there was no other, you know, no response to my calling and that. But it's quite, it's, you know, 
what you do isn't really planned and you don't really know what you're going to do. But all I knew is I probably had another half an hour of digging and wriggling to get my legs out of the snow. And then I stood up, my phone rang. And I thought, God, you know, this um, it must have just been by the repeater from Mount Cook Village or something. And somebody said, are you okay? And I said, yep, I'm fine. And they said, oh, okay, it's the Beacon people. We thought you had problems. And I said, oh, I don't, but we've got problems. Yes, the, you know, the boys are both buried at this stage. And, um, and you know that it's been basically an hour and the survival at that stage is not very hopeful. So, um, but it was so weird standing up there in the middle of um, nowhere on this ridge and um, the sun rising and the phone ringing just um, didn't all seem to stack up. You've got two peaks to go on this list of the 24 of the 3,000 metre plus peaks, is that That's correct? That's right. Yeah. And, and you'll keep going? Well, I've had another go at um, Torres. I've since found um, a guide, Paul, who's um, helped me to get up a few more rock faces to, to get, my, um, get my mojo back. And he um, and I went and gave Torres a climb, but we didn't get to the summit. The conditions were really poor, but um, we got to about 3,000 metres, but it was still probably another 10 hours to get to the summit. So we turned around. And since then, I've had a knee replacement, so I'm just coming back to speed. How's the rehab? Oh, <laughs> yeah. We won't talk about it. Rehabs for life, not just for Christmas, is what they say. Both of you have been in these situations where you've had to self-calm. So Chris, in your book, you talk about climbing Mitre Peak down in Fjordland, which is pretty grunty. Um, and Joe, you know, the avalanche and multiple other situations. How do you do that? Uh, and are you conscious of the fact that you do that to kind of calm yourself down? Because you can't just lose your cookies, can you? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of um, situations that you can get yourself into where if you say, say for example, up on Mitre Peak, which is the mountain right in the middle of Milford Sound, and it's about a 1,700 metre drop straight into the ocean. Um, and so you're climbing up there and you're looking down and, and you, like you, you're putting your foot down onto the next foothold and then the, the ocean's just the other side of your foot, about a kilometre away. And in that moment, you can quite easily like, start to panic and then you're, um, you're blood pressure goes up and your heart rate goes up and, and, and then you just start to perform like at a much lower level to what you're um, capable of doing and then potentially you could you know, kind of shake yourself off and head on down the cliff where you don't want to go. Um, and it's so important in that moment just to stop and, and take time if you need time and sometimes time is just like one or two seconds and actually take that deep breath and think about what you're doing and then perhaps ignore the ocean or ignore the hazard or whatever is there um, and, and just stop and think about it and then you can make that calm, clear decision on, on perhaps do we keep going or should we turn around or whatever it is that you, that you need to do. But sometimes that little moment where you stop and think about it will save your life and therefore you can keep going back and doing it more often. Yes, I can remember on The Remarkables, um, crawling into a little cave and sending Gareth a message saying, I love you lots, thinking I'm not going to get out of this alive. But um, that was in the early days of um, my mountaineering. I didn't start mountaineering till I was 58 and um, got seriously into it. 
couldn't um, couldn't stop me. Every time I'd go on a family holiday, we'd get to the beach and you'd have a couple of days looking at the surf and everyone happy and I'd be ringing up my guide Wolfgang saying, are you free? What are you doing? Let's go. <laughs> so um, uh, the family was getting a bit, thinking I was a bit obsessed and I suppose I was, but it was just so amazing and it wasn't till I'd got really seriously into it that I thought, oh, I could do that list. So the list wasn't the objective. And I got into the mountains and fell in love. Just um, like you say, it's your, your mind has to be totally attuned to the now. You can't start thinking about anything else. You, you know, you, you're just focusing on each footstep. Yeah, in that moment, if you're thinking about something else or you're worrying about the future or um, troubleshooting the past or something, then you're distracted and you're not going to perform as, as well as you might need to to get yourself safely through that moment. Mm, flow state, I'm told, it's called. Joe, are you a collect the whole set kind of person? You've got this list of the 24. Are you the sort of person who writes a, a list of things that they want to tick off of goals and then? I did put a, a map up on the wall and um, a little list, yes. But then I've got this huge map on the wall of all the countries we've done by motorbike. And um, I'm up to about 110 or 112 of something countries by motorbike. And you think, oh, there's a big patch there we haven't done. <laughs> and so um, that's an ongoing uh, distraction in my life too. Still intend to get back and do West Africa. Chris, are you a collect the whole set type of person? Or do you just kind of go off and see what, throw, sort of throw things at the wall and see what sticks? Yeah, not so much. I'm more of a go with the flow kind of person. And some of the best experiences that I've ever had have been very last minute things. Um, one day, I think I was 19 years old and uh, I was at home at Gorge River and I'd just um, been turned down for a, a job working as a ski patrol in Canada because I couldn't get a visa in time, which was really, really disappointing. They wanted me, but it just wasn't going to work. And so I was at home and I kind of didn't have anything coming up and I was just seeing if something would appear. And one day um, I got a Skype message from my auntie saying, hey, do you want a job on a ship going to Antarctica? Uh, if so, message me as soon as possible. And, and I'd, it'd only been 30 minutes um, ago when we got this message. This is on satellite internet, by the way. When I left home, mum and dad got satellite internet so they could contact me. And so we were, contact, we were in um, contact with the world by then at Gorge River. And so I saw this message, it was 30 minutes ago, and I replied, and, and about two o'clock that afternoon, I'd signed a contract um, to go on this ship. I left Gorge River um, not the day after because the weather was bad, but um, the, the following day. And on day four, I stepped onto the ship in Littleton. And day five, we sailed across the horizon heading towards Antarctica. And my whole world and everything that I knew um, disappeared behind me. <laughs> and, and off we went into the Southern Ocean and I was working in the, in the galley of the ship right down the bottom um, couldn't see the light of day, working 16-hour days back-to-back -back, um, for two months and getting paid $4 an hour to make salads, which was maybe um, not my idea of the working world. However, it got me to Antarctica, and it was such an amazing opportunity, but I was able to take it because I was flexible 
and open to something coming along, and then when it did, I was like, yes, of course, I'm going to take that. Never even thought about, you know, potentially it was going to be quite horrific uh, working on the ship, but I never thought about that. I knew that going to Antarctica was something that I wanted to do, and I said yes. And once you've said yes, you work everything else out, um, even if it can be quite hard or challenging or fun or whatever it is, you'll work that out. But I really do recommend people, like if you get an amazing opportunity, don't let anything stop you from doing it. Say yes in that moment and you'll work out how to sort yeah. out the, the little issues along the way mm. later. And you, you should never refuse a reasonable request and, yeah. you know, if something like that crops yeah. up, you've got to leap at it, don't you? Exactly, yeah. So yes to adventure. Mm. And you get seasick. Because you write about that in the book quite early on. You're on a fishing ship or something, just testing it out, and you're horrifically seasick. Mm. And then this opportunity to hop on this ice-breaking vessel comes up, and I'm going, no, Chris, no. <laughs> this isn't going to end well. But you did it anyway. I did it anyway. And I did uh, learn a lot about myself. I learned that if I'm seasick for about three or four days, then I stop being seasick. Uh, but, man, those three or four days is hard work. And I have continued to go back to the ocean a couple more times since then. Uh, one of the silliest things I've ever done was agree to, to sail on a yacht from New Zealand to Australia, which is going straight into the Westerlies, which we got for 10 days. Um, and it was one of the most horrific things I've ever done, um, sleeping up in the bow of a yacht, going into 6 to 10 metre Westerly swells, just, just days and days on end. I, I could hardly drag myself out of bed for, for three days of that. It was horrible. I think you guys like type 2 fun, don't you? Which we're familiar with, but for the edification of the audience, there's not just one type of fun. There's type 1 fun, which is ordinary people fun, like hot tubbing, you know, hot tubbing or drinking beer. It's fun at the time, and um, it's, not, uh, it's not necessarily fun in retrospect. Type 2 fun is sort of like the kind of things that, that we all do, which is um, definitely not fun at the time, but it is fun in retrospect because it's kind of seared upon your memory. And Joe, you said you do suffering really well. Oh, yeah, I think... Um the harder trips are, the more I enjoy them. And, you know, when you're going off mountaineering and you get halfway to your destination and you dig a little hole in the snow and you put your bivy bag in there and you crawl in and everyone thinks you've got to be really miserable and you sort of, sort of are in a funny way, but you open the little vent and you look at the clouds in the middle of the night and you see the satellites and the stars and you think, gosh, I'm so lucky to be here. And it, you know, it's hard and it's tough and you're, you haven't got anything to eat or drink or whatever because it's all frozen. And, but it's just amazing. It's so good to challenge yourself physically. I find that I need to be physical. I need to do physical things. I forgot to mention there's also type three fun. Not fun at the time, not fun in retrospect. Someone probably went home in an ambulance. Um, I'm just keeping an eye on the time, but I'm so short I can't see the clock, so if you wonder why I keep doing this. Um, let's transition to talking about writing. I think for me, having been a journalist, I'm a writer first and an adventurer second, and then I think for you guys it's the other way around. You're an adventurer first and a writer second. So what was that writing process like, Chris? Was it, was it tough? Was it blood out of a stone? Or did you quite enjoy it? I loved the writing process. Um, in some ways, it was that type two fun that we're talking about. Like in the moment when, um, for example, I was I struggled to focus before about six o'clock in the afternoon in the evening. So therefore, I'd have to write until three o'clock in the morning. So it wasn't necessarily fun in that moment, and it was definitely a lot of work. You kind of felt a bit of pressure. You've got to get those words down, and 
and then get them into some sort of order and then try and order those stories into the chapters and then order the chapters into the whole book. Um, but at the same time, afterwards, when you step back and, and, and think about it, some of the my most fond memories were of um, sitting and, and writing on my laptop um, 17 floors above Auckland doing my MIQ isolation on my way back to New Zealand, for example, uh, for 14 days. Um, and it was, it was really good to use times when you didn't really have something on. And I was working tourism jobs around when COVID started, so suddenly my workload was really up and down. Um, and so I was able to use and optimise those times when perhaps other people were um, drinking beer for 14 days in their hotel room. I was able to sit there and, and actually make that time productive, which was really satisfying. Mm. Well, I'm not really a writer. Um, I was helped greatly by John McChrystal to put the book together because I had assorted notebooks and assorted emails and assorted um, bits and pieces of things I'd written, and some of it I thought was all right. But then when John gets hold of all this information and um, we work together, it was, it was amazing. I couldn't have done it without him. So did he largely put together sort of the bulk of the actual drafts and you're sort of feeding in information? Um, were you yeah, and he'd down. use bits and pieces. And because he'd been involved in writing some of the motorbike books, um, he initially had all this huge motorcycle section. And um, Ellen and Unwin said, oh, not so much motorcycling, please. And um, so he chopped a lot of that out, and we changed a lot of the gist of that. So it's become a bit of a, a you know, whole series of drama, um, dramatic events rather than um, you know, a typical motorbike riding book. And the end bit, um, we, we talked together extensively, and I wrote bits, but he wrote far more. And your book's in three sections. You, do you maybe want to talk through what those three sections are and how you did those? Well, I wasn't very keen on doing a first section, which was meant to be about why I ended up being um, wanting to do strange things. And so we've covered my, my childhood, I suppose, and, you know, through my life until the stage that I, um, we went and did the motorcycling and we started off with the Silk Road and just continued on. Every year we'd do, you know, three or six months of um, being on the road on motorbikes. And then, um, then the climbing came into it as well as the motorcycling. And so it was a fairly hectic period um, when we were doing both the motorcycle trips and the climbing and various other endeavours that Gareth and I were doing. And we also got to do um, motorcycling through North and South Korea, which hasn't been done s before or since. So I don't know who we chatted up to get that done, but it, um, it all fell, to, you know, fell into place and it was just an amazing thing to be able to do. Chris, what was the hardest thing about producing this book? you? Uh, there was definitely a couple of challenges. I started writing in Norway in my little cabin um, in the, under the midnight sun, which was really cool because the, the sun never set. And I was busy writing away um, and then my, one of my best mates, Lockie, um, he was on a ship heading to China on, the, on a livestock ship and the ship capsized and he was never seen again. Um, so that really 
put a dampener on my writing for a while and I wasn't able to get in that mood to, to produce any words for like at least two months after that. Um, that was a, a really big mental challenge for me. Um, another little challenge I faced uh, was when I, after my MIQ, I proceeded to head on back down to South Island and go and visit mum and dad and, and get a little bit of their input to help me finish off the book. Um, so I got down to Gorge River in May, and we have solar panels and a lot of rain in May. And so the biggest challenge of that was actually just to charge my laptop to, to be able to type on, um, because it, it rained and rained and rained the whole month I was there. <laughs> Old school <Yeah>. notebook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A little bit of that, and, and then just um, write really quickly, and then turn the laptop off. I noticed that your sister, Robin, while she appears in the book, she doesn't appear really, really strongly. And I wondered if that's because she's going to write her own book. Yeah, I didn't want to tell Robin's story, and that was really important. Um, my sister's three years younger than me. She, for the first few years, kind of followed a similar pathway, and now she does a lot of work with the um, Department of Conservation, and she's currently doing a Master's in Wildlife Management down in Christchurch. So she has her own story as well. Um, of, of where she came from and her, her thoughts on growing up at, down at Gorge River in such an isolated place, but then also her challenges of, of coming out of there and adapting to the modern world and then where she took that um, forward to the future. So, yeah, fingers crossed she's going to write a book at some stage. She's doing a, a master's thesis at the moment of 50,000 words, so she's definitely not thinking about it yet. Um, but with time... There's definitely going to be quite a lot of pressure on Robin to produce the fourth book in the series. And, um, yeah, really fingers crossed that, that she'll do that at some point. So definitely look out for the, the girl from Gorge River. I <laughs> don't know if she's got many um, title options. It's got to be the title, doesn't it? <laughs> I think we'll shift to taking audience questions now. We've got 15 minutes left. So anyone who's got a question, we've got a microphone over this end of the room, and we've got one down there. So please just move in the general direction of those microphones if you have questions. And um, just a reminder to keep questions short. Um, and while people are hopefully moving towards those microphones, um, just one, one final question while we're waiting. Um, do you have any advice for people who might be sitting in the audience today and they've got a story that they want to tell and they want to write a book um, and they want to end up where you're sitting now? Jo. Well, I wrote this book really hoping that my grandchildren, when they're, you know, perhaps a lot older and I'm doddery and sitting there or some nurse is wiping my butt and, you know, you're... You're, you've sort of, you're gone, but they can look at you and say, oh, she didn't always, wasn't always like that. She, she did some cool things. And one friend that was very poorly, I suggested that he got all the country's head motorcycled across, tattooed on his butt to amuse the staff um, in the rest home. But I, I really think that it's important for the kids to know where their grandmas come from and Actually, I don't know if they like me at the moment. I'm a bit strict. I think they've all gone off me. Oh. <laughs> Chris, Chris, how about you? Yeah, I think that like, we all enjoy reading books, and behind every book is someone who probably didn't want to write it, or it was a large challenge to write it, or um, they just weren't in the right time or the right place. <clears throat> who weren't supported by the right people or whatever it was, 
there'd be very few books out there that didn't come with a very large amount of challenges. But we all sit down and we, we enjoy reading those books. And so I guess if you look at the, the big picture and the circle of life, it's a part of, a little bit, of, kind of part of the deal that um, if you do have a cool story, then, you know, perhaps it is at some stage your turn to tell it. And if you, if you sit down and, uh, like I said before, just say yes, and then you'll probably work out how to get that story out. And perhaps some people will put time pressure on you. They want it in a year or two years or something. But even if you just start, start somewhere, write down some things. Because once you start writing, then you think about the next thing. And then you're like, oh, I remember this one. Don't have time to write that today. I'm going to put that on my list. So then next time you're bored, then you've got that little prompt, even if it's just two words, like Antarctica. And then you'll go and you can write about that. And it just kind of it grows from there. And there'll be all sorts of um, different ideas that people have got, but stick very strong to, to your ideas and, and make sure you get them onto, onto paper or onto your computer. And then once you've got them there, once you've got those words, then you can sit down later with, with your editors and, and everything, and, and then they can help you to really craft it. But I know a lot of people struggle to get the words onto paper in the first place, uh, but just, just do what you can, because if you can get that story down, then there will be some support to like really make it into a really cool um, novel or, or book or whatever it is. There's also that intergenerational thing that you can do if you're writing down your notes from your past that you can then leave them for the next generation in your family that might take up the, um, the story. And, you know, it becomes quite a project within a family sometimes if um, the elders have left notes on their lives and their experiences. I don't, don't think it has to be just one person's story. Mm. I don't think we actually have any questions, do we? Unless, oh, we've got stuck people in the audience. Go for it. Maybe stand up and mask off. <laughs> what am I doing now? Um, so I came back to New Zealand about uh, May last year and um, reasonably quickly realised that I can get lots of really fun jobs in far-flung places, but if I can't travel because of COVID or if I do want to stay in one place for a bit longer, then I need to um, upskill and, and get a few more qualifications and that sort of thing. And it took me a while. I thought about a lot of things and tried a few different jobs out here and there and eventually um, decided that perhaps I should take up flying. Um, it's something that which has been obviously a big part of my life with, with growing up at Gorge River. It was our lifeline um, for, for much of the time it was the, our friend who would come in every six weeks in a little Cessna 180, a four-seat aeroplane, fly through the Southern Alps, through the cloud and through the wind and, and through the mountains, and he'd come and land in, on the very short, narrow airstrip at Gorge River. Um, and many of my childhood heroes and, and all that have been pilots over time. Um, sadly, I've known a lot of pilots who are not here today, and that's what always kept putting me off. And I always said to myself, I'm going to learn to fly one day, but I need to live enough life first that if the worst was to happen, um, I will leave this world not too disappointed. And so <laughs> having, having written this book, and I've kind of you know, gone back through a lot of those um, experiences that I've had over time, I kind of realized that, that I could say that now, and, and if, if the worst was to happen, that I could go happy. 
And so I decided to um, start learning to fly fixed-wing aeroplanes and have been very busy studying the theory and I'm moving to Mochueka at the end of September to do a private and then commercial pilot's license. And where that will take me, I don't know, um, but it could potentially take me overseas and do go back to many of the same sort of places that I've worked, like Antarctica or Norway or something, in a flying capacity, but then I could also do that closer to home as well. And you'll be able to fly your parents in and out, which would be pretty cool. Yes, of course. That's one of the, the biggest goals, is to land a plane at Gorge River. That'll be a very emotional day when I get to that. But there's a lot of work to be done first, because that is a very narrow airstrip, and you have one chance, and you don't make a mistake there. Any other audience questions? Just wave a hat. Uh, one, at, one at the far back in a black T-shirt? Maybe one of our volunteers. Yeah, so what was it like uh, when, I, when I left home and moved out? Um, first of all, the decision was the biggest decision I've ever made in my life and probably will be um, the biggest decision I ever make. It's, it's hard when that's all you really know. You've lived out in the, in the wilderness for your whole life and what is the, the rest of the world going to be like? However, I knew what was out there in the world and I did want to go and explore it and I knew it was going to be very, very hard to do that as an adult and perhaps going and finding a job somewhere or, or whatever, and I knew that going to school would be a lot easier. And so clock was obviously ticking, and I decided for that last year of school, that was my, my last easy opportunity to kind of adapt to the outside world. Um, I'll never forget the day that I walked into a school for the, pretty much the first time, and you've got 600 other students who, um, they probably knew me, I didn't know who they were at all and, and there's like the school bells ringing and you've got your lessons and you've got your schedule of where you need to be and what time and all of this sort of thing. Um, and, but it was, a, it was an amazing um, adventure at the same time. It was scary and there was so many different aspects to it. Um, I remember the very first time I ever did public speaking. Um, I was within the first two weeks and I didn't know what it looked like to be looking at the people as, as you were speaking. And so it was um, um, for um, student council, they were, they were doing a vote for student council and you had to get up in front of the class and, and um, tell them why you should be voted in for that. And I thought, yeah, why not, we'll try it. I had no idea what student council was, no idea what this entailed, no idea what public speaking was. I got up in front of, the, of about 200 people and probably froze, I don't, I don't remember, I kind of blocked that out of my memory. However, I must have done something right because I ended up getting about the second highest number of votes for the student council and then I had to work out what it was after that. Um, and through, through that year, I guess I just put myself out there and, and made a pact to myself that I'd say yes to everything. Um, obviously within reason, but for most things I was able to say yes to and really just give everything a go. Um, academically, I'd been doing the correspondence school lessons and had been doing okay with them, so academically I was pretty much level with everyone else, and then socially I was like that. And you go to a party and you have no idea like what to talk about, how to look cool, what you're meant to be doing, all that sort of thing. And I had to learn that as like a real crash course. 
as a 17-year-old, having never, uh, having never really partied, never really drunk alcohol with, with friends, and never really done anything like that at all before. Um, and it was pretty scary. But with time, you can learn all of that sort of thing. <laughs> That's exactly how I felt when I went into my first mountain hut and there's all these young men sitting around and they wonder why Granny's turned up. And you, you do have that um, feeling that you're, you know, oh, this is a bit of navigation required. Whereas now I'd go in, I wouldn't even blink. And you're they probably, probably know the who you are now, Joe. They're probably in awe. <laughs> <laughs> so they should be. And Chris in the book has a whole chapter on bringing a girl home to Gorge River. So um, highly recommend uh, reading that one. Um, multiple girlfriends, I think, mentioned in the book as well. You're quite open about that. We had another question just down here before, I think. Yes. Okay. Another one there. I definitely haven't, no. <laughs> Maybe at some point in the future. Maybe at some point in the future. Having put one together, then it, you'd definitely um, know where to start, at least, and the right people to talk to. Yeah. Have you? It could be fun, because you could tell the whole truth, couldn't you? <laughs> but just under a different name. The only time you can tell yes. the truth. <laughs> that's tempting. That's my thoughts exactly, is what Joe's saying. Yeah, mm. I've got so much dodgy material. <laughs> I can never see the light of day. Um, lady here? So I, th I think you said something about being a grandmother. Oh, okay, I don't know her. But um, I definitely try and be the naughty grandma. And um, one of my grandchildren actually tried to ring the police the other day when I was up a ladder. And she decided it was far too dangerous that Nana shouldn't be up the ladder. And in the end, she rang her dad and said, quick, come, Nana's doing dangerous stuff. No, because she, she knew being up a ladder with a chainsaw was not meant to be safe. <laughs> and I commend her, but she's, you know, yeah, little busybody, isn't it? At that age, trying to boss Nana around. <laughs> so what are you going to do about your kids? <laughs> No pressure, Chris. Yeah, question of would I raise a family out at Gorge River, and um, I don't know the answer to that yet. I've been out there exploring the world, trying to work that answer out for myself. Um, haven't yet. Don't know if I ever will. Um, I think I could definitely, I could definitely live at Gorge River if I needed to. And let's say the world um, took a turn for the, the worse, then I know that I can always go back there, and I've always got that kind of place where. I could live with my family, or if they weren't there, I could live with my family, um, and and also potentially be an example to how other people can can do that if the world was in a not a very good place. But at the same time, it's really um, like socially isolated out there. And having been out to the world, I I love people. I love being around people. I don't really enjoy being alone so much. I've done that when I was young, and so I'm always out there trying to meet other people. So that would be by far the biggest challenge um, of going and living out that far in the wilderness, which means 
maybe there's somewhere like a happy medium in between, a place where you can grow a garden, get most of your, of your food from the environment around you or, or your land or whatever it might be, but you're not like 42 kilometres from the nearest road as well. And yeah, there might be places for that. And one last question over here, and we'd, we've only got about two minutes left, one minute. So what are the prospects for ageing in Gorge River? What are your folks going to do? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting question. I, again, we're just playing it by ear with time. Mum and Dad still live there. My sister's actually visiting uh, right now. She's counting the penguins all the way up and down the, the coast. And so far, Mum and Dad are doing very well. Um, we have contact with them. They can call a helicopter if they need it. They can call a doctor to be flown out there if they need it. Um, obviously there's a chance the weather would be bad and it could be multiple days before you get that help, but they know that that's a part of the, the deal of living there. Um, they've had to come out a couple of times for like minor medical um, issues. Uh, we've never had to call um, the helicopter to come now, which has been good and fingers crossed it'll stay that way. Um, they don't walk the 42 kilometres very often anymore, so they are able to get an aircraft and be cool if I was able to be the aircraft to go in there. Um, so really all they need to be able to do is walk out to the airstrip and then get in the aircraft and they can be somewhere else very quickly. Um, but it is still a hard life as well. You're collecting firewood off the beach and, um, and it's just odd, so many odd jobs on the west coast that you have to do um, in that sort of environment. Um, so it's pretty hard for them to complete those. So a little bit of support from my sister and I is good. We can go there and fill up their woodshed while we're there and um, carry all the heavy things that Dad doesn't want to carry around anymore. And then, yeah, with time, I, I know that Dad would be very, very happy if he died at Gorge River. Um, and, yeah, he, no one could be more happy at Gorge River than he is. So I see him being there for a long time yet, and same with Mum. That's cool. awesome. Our time is up. Um, the books are available for signing and all three of us will be out at the author signing table in the foyer outside this room immediately after the session. Um, if each of you could hold your books up so people know what to look for. The, board, the Boy from Gorge River is Chris's one and Dancing with the Machine is Joe's one. And thank you all for coming along, you beautiful, shiny audience. Um, that concludes our session and I want to thank Joe and Chris for coming along and sharing their stories and their lives with us. Thank you. Thank you. Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi Otamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.